Hi, it's Mike Morris. Another episode of Open Mic here in my office. I'm so happy to be in my office. Today we have another wrongful conviction discussion, this time with Imran Syed, who is the assistant director at the Michigan Innocence Clinic. He's also a professor up there. He's been there for over 10 years, an amazing, amazing guy that I've gotten to know. And you're going to learn about, hopefully in this episode, why I've gotten to know him. And he's going to be talking about a couple of different cases, um, a movie that he wrote and produced and won some awards. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Imran Syed. Stay tuned. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one-on-one my whole career. What you're going to hear. You got a lot of desperate people in the city. Or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a crime. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts. Imran Sayed, thank you for being on Open Mic today. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm great. So you're the assistant director of the Michigan Innocence Clinic. And by, you know, I read all the blogs and I get newsletters from all the innocence clinics across the country. But you guys are doing something right. You guys are doing something <laughs> special up there. I, I And I mean, I know you seem like a, you know, you don't seem like you got this huge ego, but let's put it in perspective. So tell me, you know, how long has the Michigan Innocence Clinic been in existence? How many people, how many convictions have you gotten overturned? Things like that. Give us some general statistics. Sure. Um, the Michigan Innocence Clinic uh, recently celebrated our 10th anniversary. Uh, so, you know, 11 years now as of this January, um, since we opened our doors at the University of Michigan Law School. Um, it's been it's been an amazing experience, and I've been involved in it um, almost since the start. I was a, a law student in 2009 when I enrolled in the clinic, and then upon graduating, um, I started here as a fellow and kind of worked my way up, um, and recently actually uh, became a co-director of the clinic. So um, congratulations, yeah. <laughs> appreciate that. Um, and you know what's been special and unique about our clinic is. What's been different about our clinic from the start, which is that we are a clinic that looks at every case that possibly involves a wrongful conviction. Um, at the time of the founding of this clinic, the vast majority of innocence work was being done in the DNA realm. And that was an important start. Uh, DNA cases taught us all lessons about everything that can go wrong in the criminal justice system. Um, but what Dave Moran and Bridget McCormick now Chief Justice McCormick, who founded this clinic, uh, they came to realize that, you know, DNA cases only make up about five to 10% of criminal cases at that time. Uh, but, you know, there was no reason to believe that other cases didn't have the same errors being made, be that, you know, witness misidentification or misconduct by police or, you know, just a defense attorney who didn't do what they were supposed to. So that was kind of the theory behind this clinic was to just let's open the book on every case and see what we find. Um, and I don't think anyone could have guessed what it would be that we would find. Um, and I don't think anyone could have hoped to have the success that we've had. I think we've now had uh, 24 uh, successful victories in, uh, I guess, 11 years. Um, and they're, they run the gamut from, you know, uh, arson cases, something we've come to be known for, um, several people who were wrongfully convicted of arson and felony murder, we've exonerated um, a lot of uh, medical evidence um, that's outside of DNA. Um, you know, just eyewitness misidentification cases, cases where there are now new witnesses, 
coming forward. So uh, we've had cases that we litigated up and down the state courts for, you know, 10 years. And then we've had other cases where we were able to simply, you know, show the evidence to the prosecutor and they stipulated to having the person released. Uh, so it's been a world of experience for us and for our students that the exciting thing is, you know, we really don't know how a case will turn out. It's exciting and a uh, little bit scary, of course, for the students and very scary for the clients, uh, given that their lives are on the line. But there's really no playbook for these kinds of cases. So let's set the table for, for our listeners and viewers. I mean, you get asked to review how many cases a year? Um, our initial uh, deluge has, has somewhat uh, tapered off, I suppose. Um, you know, in the first year or two we were open, uh, we received probably over 5,000 applications right at that time. And remember, the clinic uh, at the time consisted of two attorneys and maybe 10 to 12 students and a, and a legal assistant. So uh, it was quite uh, uh, an ordeal working through that, and it took us many years to get through it. Um, as of now, we probably still get about uh, three to 400 applications a year. Um, although that can really vary, you know, uh, some people are applying again and again, some people are applying who are not in our state and therefore, you know, we just send them a letter referring them to someone else. Um, but what does make our clinic different is that, um, we don't have a criteria as far as you must have DNA or you must have, you know, X number of years remaining in your sentence. We say, if you feel you're wrongfully convicted, we'll look at your case. And, you know, we've even had a case that was kind of on the borderline of, is it a criminal case, really? It was a failure to pay child support, but someone was wrongfully convicted of that. And so we, we took on that case as well. Um, so what that means is uh, we do get, you know, many, many applications that um, our students do, the initial review, um, and then one of the supervisors, uh, me, or now we've got two other supervising attorneys, um, decides, is it a case that we can look further into? And that looking further into a case um, can be a matter of uh, a few days or a few years, uh, depending on, you know, how much evidence there is to be found. Um, yeah. And on average, you know, how many cases a year would you say you open? It's a good question. Um, let's see. So... I would say probably about 30 to 40 new cases are opened a year. Um, many of them end up being closed. The, the challenge in, in our line of litigation is that there aren't necessarily specific deadlines at which you know, the case concludes. We've had cases that we took on in 2011 that we're still litigating, that we took all the way through the state courts, filed a federal habeas corpus. You know, there's a case that we appeal to the US Supreme Court twice and you know, we still represent this person. So. Um, those old cases don't go away quite as fast. And, you know, we still do get, um, you know, I, as I said, probably 30 to 40 new investigations are open. And then probably, you know, in the past few years, it's been at least a handful of new cases are accepted for litigation each year. Um, and at any given time, we're litigating between 25 to 30 cases um, between, you know, three attorneys. And, and it's mostly student uh, explain to me, I don't even know the answer to this. I know you're yeah. not supposed to ask questions you don't know the answer of is if you're a good lawyer, but luckily today I don't have my lawyer hat on. I'm an interviewer. Um, what percentage of the work in general would you say is being done by the students versus one of the three supervisors? The great thing about uh, the student practice rule in Michigan is that students get to do a lot more than they would in most other states. Um, and I would say percentage-wise, the students are doing more than 
half the work, um, probably in the neighborhood of 70%. Um, but it does vary in the category of work. When it comes to litigation, of course, the supervising attorneys are a lot more involved. Um, but so much of our work is uh, screening cases and then investigating them, speaking to old attorneys, the investigating officer, uh, witnesses who either came forward but now are changing their story or, or never came forward. Um, and so that that part of the job is almost exclusively done by students. The building up of the factual uh, background of the case is almost exclusively done by students under supervision. So we have weekly meetings. Each student is meeting with at least one supervisor every week for an update on what they've done since the last um, meeting, you know, what are the next steps? Uh, and these are really immensely helpful meetings. We actually didn't have them when I was a student in the clinic, um, but you know, things we've learned in the, in the 10, 11 years. Um, and as I said, there, there's not necessarily a, a one playbook to this. So uh, I'm always, you know, I guess surprised, but also pleasantly so when students come up with solutions I would have never thought of, because that's the benefit of having a, a fresh set of eyes on a case, um, you know, and really in even, even the a category of case that I've done before, it's always good to have a different perspective on. That's great. I mean, and, and I know that the kids, the law students there are, are, I know some of them are like yourself going on to do this for a living, um, which has got to be gratifying for you guys. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, about half our students uh, come into the clinic knowing they want to go into criminal defense. Um, but the other half either want to be prosecutors or, you know, just uh, attorneys in a different capacity, perhaps for the government, perhaps, you know, corporate law, whatever. Um, but I'm very proud of how many of them see this as a meaningful experience, regardless of which um, line of work they go into. And we've had many students, of course, who've gone on to be excellent public defenders. Um, but also we've had many that, you know, go to work at big firms in New York, but always uh, contribute on a pro bono level, either to the Innocence Project in New York or quite frequently uh, contribute to our firm when we need, you know, uh, an amicus brief written or we need someone to assist on a case, uh, perhaps a specific issue on a pro bono basis. Uh, we've built up quite a alumni base of students. So I'm always able to call on them regardless of whether they're criminal defense attorneys now or not. Let's talk about, I mean, my question isn't even clear in my brain yet, <laughs> but I've interviewed six people who have been wrongfully convicted in Michigan, and the only reason that they're home with their families right now is because of clinics like the Michigan Innocence Clinic. And actually several of them, Julie Balmer, uh, Kenny Wanenko, um, and others, you, your clinic directly worked on these cases. And the fact that you took the case, I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, how many people aren't reaching out? How many yeah. people, maybe one of your students decides to take a pass on? Um, and, but for you, they have no hope. How do you like, how does that add up in your brain? Like the enormity of what you guys are doing and the, the amazing work you're doing is it's, I mean, sitting in your chairs there. I mean, how is that? Um, it can be, it can be a overwhelming thing to think about. Um, you know, 
Julie Bomber's case, I remember well from my time as as a student in the clinic. I didn't work on it, but I got to observe it. Uh, Ken was actually represented by the Cooley Innocence Project, but he's given back to our clinic many times, and we've represented him on other smaller matters. But um, his exoneration was kind of the one we all learned from. He was, I think, the second uh, DNA exoneree in Michigan. Um, I think it's important for us and for the students to be cognizant of this fact that by the time the case comes to us, there's probably not going to be anyone else who looks at it. And so that's important for us um, to take the appropriate amount of attention and, and deference to the claims being made. We have to understand that the person who's filling out the application does not have uh, the advantage of using the internet or having an investigator to give them all of the facts. So we have to kind of give them the benefit of the doubt at that initial stage, of course, then go and verify all the claims that are being made and find actual evidence if we're ever going to succeed in court. Um, I think it can be, you know, it can be a pressure, but uh, I hope students see it as something really meaningful that they're getting to be a part of. Um, and, you know, a lot of the law, regardless of where they go on to practice, is, is pressure oriented. And I think this is a, a great training for that sort of thing. Um, because regardless of how important a case is, we also have to teach students, you know, the appropriate work-life balance they'll need to succeed in school and in life. And we have to, uh, you know, be realistic with our clients because as proud of, as I am of all of the victories we've had, um, you know, we have a lot more clients who no one's heard of because we haven't managed to get them any relief yet. And I hope one day we will, but um, managing that side of it um, and, and kind of preparing to have all of your hard work kind of be for naught in this round of an appeal and then have to fight again. These are all important experiences that I think really contribute to the full making of a lawyer, which is, of course, what the clinical programs aim to do. Fabulous. You were instrumental in one of the country's first non-DNA innocence cases involving Duane Province. Am I pronouncing that right? You actually are. Almost no one pronounces it correctly, but you did. <laughs> so tell us why this was so groundbreaking, this particular case. Yeah. So Duane's case, uh, again, I was a student in the clinic and got to kind of learn about it while my colleagues were working on it uh, when Duane was exonerated. But uh, the reason this case was really groundbreaking is... Uh, at least for Michigan and for Detroit, it was right at the beginning of this uh, coming understanding of how bad um, the criminal justice system could be and how bad, honestly, it had gotten in Detroit. Uh, Dwayne was convicted of murder um, despite the fact that um, the police department, uh, the investigating officer initially on the case was aware that someone else had committed the series of murders that had happened in this neighborhood. Yet Dwayne was charged and convicted of one of them when, you know, the beat officers in that neighborhood would have told the prosecution that they had the wrong guy. Um, and in the prosecutor's office, interestingly enough, um, there's a series of murders, three of them. Um, Dwayne was prosecuted for one, but the same prosecutor's office under a very, very different theory, tried another man for one of the other murders. And when we discovered this, we realized that really both theories couldn't be true. And, um, you know, we presented this in court. There was new evidence. The witness against Dwayne was recanting. There was, um, you know, all kinds of new evidence that would have eventually gotten him a new trial after a hearing. Um, but, you know, I think the judge finally started to understand after seeing some of this evidence that this case was truly what, you know, we purported it to be that a man had been 
convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison, despite, or excuse me, sentenced to, you know, 30 to 60 years, but had served 10 years in prison, uh, despite being fully and actually innocent. So Dwayne was exonerated in around 2010. Yes, I think March of 2010. Um, and then there was a series of victories similarly um, after that, some achieved by our clinic, some by the Innocence Project, some by just independent attorneys, um, that I think really started to show the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office and the police department that there was a systemic issue here, that um, when it happened once or twice, it was easy enough to say, well, this is a one in a million case. But by 2015, 16, I think uh, Prosecutor Worthy certainly came to understand um, that this was more than just, you know, a once in a million thing. So I give her a lot of credit at that point for creating the Conviction Integrity Unit in Wayne County, which has uh, quickly become one of the best conviction integrity units in the country. And they have exonerated, you know, I think probably close to 30 people now in just the two or three years that they've been innocent. And we've been fortunate enough to work with them on a couple of our exonerations. Um, so, so I think in this 10 years, the world has really changed uh, as far as uh, litigating an innocence case and what are your chances of of being vindicated if you were wrongfully convicted. And that can be traced back to those early beginnings with the Providence case where we were making these allegations that police and prosecutors had made some missteps and people were, you know, just seeing us uh, as, as seeing this as a ludicrous thing to say. But today, I think virtually everyone accepts that this happens and we need to minimize and prevent this from happening. Well, it feels like you can't go a week without hearing about another wrongful conviction being overturned. That's right. And and I think a lot of that is owed to, you know, the Cooley Innocence Project existed on its own since 2003. We, we were founded in 2009. But then what really caused this movement to take off is the proliferation of conviction integrity units. Our uh, attorney general's office now has a CIU. Um, it's fairly new, but I have high hopes that they'll do some good things. Um, and then just the number of attorneys that are, are now empowered to take these cases on themselves. Uh, attorneys at the State Appellate Defender Office have had exonerations and, and really great uh, post-conviction cases they've handled. And then just attorneys handling uh, these cases privately, um, either because they were retained or often on a pro bono basis. That's really what's caused this movement to take off. And I think that's why we hear about these so, so often. Uh, I think I hope we reach a time when the vast majority of these are not an innocence clinic case because, you know, I want it to be so that a lot of people are involved in this and that way we can hopefully finally reach everyone that, you know, deserves help. It'd be really nice to not have any more wrongful convictions. Right. And that, of course, is a, is a major goal as well. There have been a couple of task forces in recent years that, that study the leading causes of wrongful conviction, which, depending on who you talk to, are either junk science, eyewitness misidentification, or inadequate defense lawyering. And for all of those, our clinic has played a role in uh, task forces and commissions to reform these things. Uh, there's been reform on the uh, you know public defender front. Um, there are public defender offices opening up in virtually every county these days. And that's great because just five years ago, I think only two or three counties in Michigan had a public defender office. Uh, so that's great. If you have an institution with some resources that can you know attack these cases, we're currently working on trying to get some forensic science reform done um, because as important it is, as it is to win you know, a single case based on junk arson science, uh, it would be great if we could, uh, you know, kind of moving forward, have a systemic uh, way way to reform how investigators look at those cases and to reach the people that were wrongfully convicted. That's right. Reach the people who are wrongfully convicted, but get the resources to the defense attorneys who are representing these people before they even go to trial. Absolutely. You know, as we are, as I'm digging into these cases, 
all of this stems from inadequate defense attorneys not doing their homework, not raising the alarm bells, not calling you when they have an arson case or a shaken baby case or, you know, not in every, I've not, out of all these interviews I've been doing and all of the podcasts and all the people I've met in this industry trying to save people, the most generous people, anything you need, call me, anything I can give you, any experts, right? It's, it's your community is pretty special. And when I'm reading through these cases and reading through the transcripts, getting ready for an interview, the defense attorneys are just bad. And I'm not saying across the board for defense attorneys in general, but the cases that are, get overturned, it's what percentage of the time did they have a stellar defense where they had the right experts and the right defense attorneys and the right arguments? Like I'm asking a serious question, yeah. Ron. What percentage of the time do you say, wow, that defense attorney did a great job. There's not much difference I could have helped him with, with before the trial. Well, uh, very close to zero, of course. Um, and, the, and the reason for that is, you know, it has a lot to do with resources and not giving attorneys the proper resources and training. So, you know, we've had a focus on improving that, uh, improving, you know, the average defense attorney's understanding of forensic science. And that doesn't mean making them a scientist. That means putting them on notice that when you see this kind of evidence, you have to bring in an expert to assist you because that really hasn't been the culture in Michigan. And I think that's what this gets down to when you see the difference in how does the average appointed defense attorney react when, you know, I call them 10 years later and say, hey, you, you know, why didn't you look into this case? Do you think this client might have been innocent? And, and there's a little bit of a defensiveness. That's just because the culture that's existed is the defense attorneys always felt like they were out on a planet on their own. There was never going to be anyone to help them. You know, the state police lab wasn't going to help them. The prosecutor wasn't going to offer them any of the resources that they have. Um, and so if your client couldn't afford to hire somebody, then, you know, the best the defense attorney really could do is, is you know, maybe do some research online, although uh, usually that's not even done. Um, but a lot of this also has to do with making sure we have the right people that are, that are handling these cases. Um, representing someone who's charged with a crime and faces, you know, uh, the, the taking away of their liberty, this has to be uh, seen by our justice system as, as an immense responsibility. And we have to make sure that we train people and put the right people in place to do that. And I think that's finally happening with the standards that have been set for defense, indigent defense um, and, and kind of the reform that a lot of the uh, counties are undergoing as far as how they assign attorneys, what kinds of trainings are re required for attorneys and, and what the uh, accountability will be when an attorney makes a mistake. Um, which, of course, is a very touchy subject because, um, unfortunately, you know, we'll all make mistakes. Um, but where a mistake costs your client their liberty and it's something, you know, that a reasonable attorney could have done better and should have done better, I think there has to be some accountability. And, you know, that's that's a challenge that we're, we're still working on uh, tackling, of course. You actually made a film on the case we were just talking about um that won some awards at the Michigan Film Festival. So congratulations on that. But tell me about that project and tell me how we can watch this film. Yeah, so um, I made the film on Dwayne Province's case, uh, I think around 2015 or 16. And, and what inspired that was, as I said, I had seen Dwayne's uh, case 
come up as I was a student in the clinic in 2010 and 11. Um, and then, uh, you know, after he was exonerated, Dwayne was, you know, uh, very open in speaking about his experience. He went and testified uh, at, uh, he gave uh, um, uh, statements at a public hearing in the Michigan Supreme Court talking about his experience and the need to open up pathways to, to litigate post-conviction cases. He would always come and speak to our class um, and, and just was very open about his experiences. And the whole time he was under, he was going through a civil lawsuit um, trying to get, you know, some damages for um, the wrongful conviction and for the, the misconduct that had led to his wrongful conviction. Um, and he was, you know, they were getting, they were making progress. I think they had a, a success or a favorable decision from the Sixth Circuit as far as um, what he was entitled to. Um, and then right kind of as they were approaching the goal line there, the city of Detroit filed for bankruptcy and uh, Dwayne became, you know, one of the, I think the term is unsecured creditors. Um, and, and for a while it, it wasn't clear whether he would get paid and, and if so, how much. So as he was kind of um, going through that and just, you know, the challenging psychological toll that was taking. Um, I, that was the time that uh, we filmed this uh, documentary, just kind of interviewing him as he went about his everyday life and uh, some of the students who worked on his case, his family, of course. Uh, and the goal was to tell the story of how difficult uh, it can be to right a wrong once this happens, to, to overturn a conviction, but even beyond that, how many challenges people have uh, after, you know, they are released and, you know, they have their couple of days in the news. Um, and, you know, I sometimes make the mistake of reading the comments under a Detroit news or free press story and, just to see what the public thinks of this. And, you know, people have this misunderstanding that you get out of prison and then boom, your life is set. You're going to be a millionaire. You're going to have cars and yachts and you're good. I think there's no understanding of the absolute psychological toll this has taken on people. Um, and then, you know, even those that are entitled to money are not going to see it for a long time. Um, when Dwayne got out, there was no um, there was no statute in Michigan for wrongful conviction compensation. Uh, he could only obtain money if he had grounds to file a civil suit, and he did have grounds. But most wrongfully convicted people don't. Uh, it's hard to show that there was any misconduct or or you know willful uh, misconduct. Um, but you know, in 2015, Michigan passed a law to compensate the, the wrongly convicted. And uh, once Attorney General Nessel came into office, the law actually now has some teeth and people are actually seeing compensation. So that part of it has become easier. Um, but, you know, it, it was just a desire to capture some of the challenges that, that people don't understand about a wrongful conviction. Um, it, it, it was amazing to me, even then, and especially today, how people kind of are... Uh, express just being tired of hearing these stories. They, you know, kind of see it as, okay, yet another person went through this. And I wanted to put a human face on it because um, each of these people has a different story and, and a different set of challenges. And it's not all, you know, uh, just easy walk through the park when once you're exonerated. So uh, Dwayne's story, I think, told that really well. And he, him and his family were, were great in all through the filming process. And yeah, we submitted it to, I think it was the Great Lakes uh, Film Festival and, and received an award there, what which was, was great. I mean, uh, it was called The Price of Providence. Um, you know, I don't know that it's still available online, um, but, uh, you know, I, 
I made DVD copies and sent them to everyone involved <laughs> in it. Uh, a lot of the students were interviewed for it, and, and that year's Innocence Clinic class actually was filmed because as we were discussing the case. And it was a great project, an amateur project, but I hope I'll get to take that on again in the five or six years that since I completed that. Um, you know, I've learned a lot more about this issue, and I've come across a lot more stories that I think would be excellent to tell. So, well, another story, uh, a recent case you guys worked on, Walter Forbes. Recently released after serving 37 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. Your clinic had that responsibility on that case, correct? That's right. And he was exonerated how long ago? Uh, just a month and a half. So I remember reading about this. Why don't you lay it out for us? I mean, what a, what a massive undertaking that must have been. How long? First of all, how long did you work on that case? Uh, we took the case on officially in 20, uh, or excuse me, we started... Uh, the investigation in 2011. And then we took it on around 2016, I think. Um, so that's a good example of, you know, it took five years of investigating to get to a point where we had enough evidence to even, you know, uh, sign him up as a client and then try to file a motion on his behalf. So, um, you know, Walter's case uh, is unusual in that the older a case is, the the more unlikely it is that we'll be able to help that person because, you know, evidence disappears, witnesses die. Um, but Walters was unusual in that he had been very meticulous over the years in documenting everything, in, you know, just typing up reports to himself, essentially, just so when he one day would have an attorney, he'd be able to give them all of these things. And I think it was really his... Um, personal responsibility and, and uh, meticulous record keeping that really enabled us to work on this case. Um, this was a fire that happened in Jackson uh, in a, in a kind of converted dilapidated apartment building. Um, and one man died in the fire. Uh, Walter had had some disagreements with this person in the days leading up or excuse me, in the months leading up. Um, so you could see, you know, why Walter would be investigated as a suspect. However, uh, police became very locked into Walter, even after better evidence emerged that someone else was involved, that the owner of the building had um, benefited financially from the fire, um, from insurance. And police were also getting tips from people that, that who were saying that they had been hired by the owner of the building to set this fire. Um, that was largely ignored. Um, it was very difficult even for the defense to ask about that at trial. Um, it was deemed irrelevant. Uh, Walter was convicted on the testimony of one woman who gave a fairly unlikely account of walking down this street at 2 a.m. when she had no business to be out or on that street and seeing them pouring gasoline, Walter and two other men. Interestingly, one of the other men was never charged and um, the second person was acquitted by the jury. So Walter was the only one convicted on this very questionable account. Um, the amazing thing is in the 30, you know, 30 or so years that he was on his own before we started looking at his case, he never filed any post-conviction motion. All he did was investigate and collect evidence. Um, and that's because Walter understood better than most that our procedural rules are designed to be a trap for defendants. Um, our procedural standards uh, require you to present evidence as quickly as you obtain it, but then also will bounce your claims if they don't present a complete enough picture. Um, so Walter knew that he needed an attorney to do this. He knew he really only had one shot, so he was better off collecting everything and trying to build things up. Um, once we came on the case, uh, he informed us that the man who had been the other suspect in this case, the owner of that building, was actually convicted a couple of years later in a, in a different 
arson insurance fraud scheme. Uh, we were able to locate documents to show that. So that was really interesting. And then our students spent a number of years trying to build a relationship with this woman who had testified against Walter, trying to win her trust. And eventually she came clean and told us that she had lied. Um, she had been threatened by certain people in the community who had disagreements with Walter's family um, to falsely implicate Walter. And uh, we took all this evidence to the Jackson County prosecutor, asked them to you know, take some action because we felt this was an innocent person in prison. Uh, they interviewed the witness, but ultimately declined to do anything. So we then filed a motion. Uh, the judge in Jackson County held a hearing all by Zoom actually over the summer uh, during COVID. And he found the witness very credible, uh, the recanting witness. He, um, you know, she has been put through hell for coming forward with this. Uh, people have threatened her. People have tried to, you know, confuse and dissuade her from testifying. Uh, she also uh, has, you know, very serious health issues, is recovering from cancer. Um, the judge simply found that there'd be no reason this, for this woman to go through all this today, except if it was the truth. And he found it very overwhelming um, evidence that a new trial was was warranted. And when a new trial happens, he saw that you know, this alternate suspect evidence is suddenly very relevant because the man has been convicted of the exact same crime, um, which would be something that could be brought in by the defense. And so the judge concluded this conviction needed to be thrown out. And uh, I give the Jackson County prosecutor credit for not dragging out the process. They could have appealed. They didn't. They simply dismissed the case about a week later. They could have appealed and they could have retried it. They could have retried it. Um, and as laughable as that retrial would be, I've seen it done. So yeah. I do have to give them credit for, for, you know, not beating a dead horse there. So. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I've seen it done too. And, and, and if these, these, some of these prosecutors and some of the, and not just in Michigan, and I've, you know, I've been doing some interviews in Iowa and other States and, and the prosecutors just, I mean, the evidence can be overwhelming and they won't let go of that bone. Right. Um, I think ideally we're moving to an era where that'll happen less and less. Um, as you know, prosecutors kind of come up in a different time or trained in a different world. This is, I guess, my idealistic view that the past uh, 10 or so years where people have really come to, you know, recognize that police misconduct at least exists, whether, you know, what the extent of it is, we can disagree. Um, I hope the prosecutors will learn not to blindly trust evidence um, and that juries will learn that, you know, proof beyond a reasonable doubt has a significant meaning in our constitution. And you're not just supposed to convict anyone just because they're sitting there, uh, which I think unfortunately used to happen a lot. Yeah. And, and let's hope that, you know, that, that the mainstream mainstream news media does keep reporting on these things because you're right. When, when jurors are sitting there, you know, healthy skepticism is good. Right. And, um, you know, not just believing people, like you said, just because the defendant is charged and sitting there doesn't mean anything. Um, exactly. And and mistakes happen. Police are make mistakes. Police are intentionally wrong. Prosecutors have tunnel vision, and they 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 want it. They want what they want. Judges, <laughs> are want what they want a lot of times, and they can have tunnel vision and look for that conviction. Um, so hopefully jurors are getting smarter with all this great press. Exactly. That's been my hope. Um, I guess I always tend to overestimate how much good things permeate uh, the, the consciousness of the general public. But hopefully, you know, the movement is building. And how is Walter Forbes now that he's out after 37 years? Uh, incredible, actually. And um, this is something I continue to be surprised by. And we are very fortunate that... 
every uh, person we've had the pleasure of representing, um, once they are released, they, you know, they understand the value of their life and, and their freedom better than anybody. And they know that sitting around and being bitter about it is, is only going to take away more of their life. Um, so Walter is doing really well. Um, he's always been a very calm and, um, you know, thoughtful person. And I think that's helped him. A lot of people, when they're initially released, the, you know, the pace of the world and the million things that exist today that didn't exist before, that just, you know, overwhelms them. It's like being in an ocean. Um, Walter, I guess, benefited from the fact that you know, the whole world is kind of slowed down these days, uh, given none of us are going to our offices and rarely going to the store and all that. Um, he's, he's done really well in slowly building up, you know, learning how to use technology, um, learning to be wise with the little money that he has at the moment. Hopefully he'll get some compensation from the state. Um, and he wants to kind of see out the remainder of his life in a productive way. And, you know, he spent his time in prison reading and, and just better informing himself. I don't think, you know, anyone comes out uh, better for having been in prison, but there are certainly more productive ways to use that time. And I think he tried to do everything, even in the terrible circumstances he was in, so that one day when he gets out, he can kind of hit the ground running, and he has. Imran, as you were telling me the story about him, I'm thinking to myself about patience, so you kept saying that he was gathering the evidence, he's getting it all ready for the time he gets a lawyer. He didn't file the appropriate motions. I say appropriate. Right. He didn't file timely motions for appeals and, and post-conviction relief waiting for you. Okay? He was waiting for you and Dave <laughs> Moran and the Innocence Clinic, but he waited 37 years. How do you that talk about he should be giving lectures in patience uh, and teaching people how to I mean, I can't wait 37 minutes to uh, uh, for an answer on certain things. How did he wait 37? I mean, it's kind of mind-blowing. Absolutely. Um, I think it's just he is uh, unusual in kind of being able to take himself out of the situation and visualize what this will look like. Um, and I think what he saw was so many of his – uh, fellow inmates were filing motions, some with very meaningful evidence that were just being routinely denied. Um, and when it's a pro se motion, you know, I feel, and I think most inmates feel that they're not really even being read before being denied. Um, and Walter knew, you know, that having an attorney and the right attorney would be really important. Uh, so, you know, it, it was odd because this was kind of used against him in the hearing. The prosecutor kind of turned this into an argument of, well, if this evidence is so good, why didn't you use it before? Um, which I think is really unfair and kind of uh, turning the tables on the general argument, which is you filed a hundred motions and you know, you'll file anything and everything. We can't trust you. But Walter knew he had to present a complete claim. And even though he had allegations and he had, you know, Rumors people were telling him about this woman will recant. He didn't have a recantation. Um, he was writing letters trying to get in touch with her, but he was very limited in what he could do there. Um, and similarly, he had some documents about this alternative suspect being convicted in a different fire, but he's not entitled to file FOIA requests, for example. Our, our statute uh, prevents inmates from doing that. So there were things he knew he needed an attorney to do. And what I, again, I give him credit for is not simply sitting there waiting, doing nothing. 
he was building his case file so that when we came in, he could hand us, you know, typewritten, beautiful summaries of everything that happened at his trial, which was very in important to the students initially. This, you know, this was a multi-day trial. I think the transcript was over a thousand pages. So it was a little bit overwhelming to, uh, to get involved in initially. By the way, a thousand pages is long for a criminal trial. I think that's probably not for a civil trial. Um, but, you know, he was really the best resource on his own case. And that helped the, you know, I think close to 30 students that worked on his case over, over almost 10 years um, help, helped us get to this point. And, and I give the judge a lot of credit for looking at this appropriately. You know, as lawyers, we have this tendency to be skeptical, skeptical of everything. Um, and, you know, it would have been easy for another judge to say, this guy knew his evidence was crap and that's why he didn't file it for all these years, which would have been really unfair and fascinating. Uh, I, I yeah. think that's a great story. And if Walter Forbes ever wants to come on open mic, you let him know he's got an open invitation. I'd love to meet him okay. and I'd love to hear his story. And I think he could teach us all. I mean, it sounds like a great guy and uh, it sounds like, you know, it's interesting. Every person I've met and I've met half a dozen in person uh, of people who've been in prison for, for many years they don't come out bitter, and it, you're right, Imran. It's it's very and it's very consistent. I mean, I haven't met anybody who is just angry at the world and is out for blood and vengeance, and and um, it's they're just appreciative and uh, they're they're happy to be out, and they don't want to waste another day being mad. And some of these, exactly. these, and they're all horrible stories. There's not one good story. The only good <laughs> thing about the stories is that they're out. Right. Right. Yeah, and I continue to be amazed by that. Um, it's, I, I guess it's something, you know, you find certain character and patience in you that you don't know exists, if you're lucky. Unfortunately, some people never find that, and I think they're the ones who kind of rail against the system, get themselves in trouble in prison, and, you know, eventually are probably in a place where, you know, we can't really even help them, um, which is sad, and I'm not justifying it in any way, but patience is is what I think gets people through that unbelievable, uh, unimaginable situation of, of being sentenced to life in prison for something you didn't do. One area that uh, the Michigan Innocence Clinic and, and you particularly have worked hard on are arson cases. I've never handled an arson case, but why are so many people in prison based on evidence surrounding arson? That's a, you know, that's a great question. And uh, I, was fortunate enough to fall into this uh, when a case was assigned to me as a third year law student. And it was the case of David Gavitt. Um, and, you know, I had no idea, but that would become kind of the, the poster child uh, nationally for how these cases go wrong and how you can get it right. Um, throughout the better part of the 70s and 80s, and then continuing, unfortunately, into the 90s and maybe even today, but largely in the 70s and 80s, um, there were these beliefs about fire that um, virtually every fire was deemed to be arson because investigators had come to believe that if you find certain markings in the fire scene, that means gasoline or another accelerant was used. To give you an example, um, if the fire department puts out a house fire, then the fire investigator walks in. Um, they will look at the floors, they'll clear debris away and look at the patterns on the floor. And, and if they find something that to them looks like a puddle pattern, they'll say that's where an accelerant had been poured. There's a number of these other things. You know, if 
if wood blisters in a certain way, that means there were uh, the fire was unusually hot, which means there was accelerants. If the gra if the glass on the windows breaks in a certain way, that means it was an accelerant. If this sounds like weird Harry Potter magic stuff, that's because it was. These were not scientifically tested theories. Um, to scientifically test these things, you'd have to find two identical houses, pour gasoline through one and set that one on fire, and then you know set the other one on fire, maybe with a candle falling on a couch, and see if the fires burn long enough can you tell them apart? Ironically, no one did that until, well, you know, there were a couple of uh, different investigators that decided to do these controlled experiments in the late 80s. Uh, John Lentini is uh, widely considered um, kind of, you know, one of the fathers of this movement uh, to reform uh, forensic science surrounding arson cases. And him and a number of other people used to be part of the problem. They used to be the ones that would arrive at a scene, immediately call it arson. And then, you know, this poor homeowner who lost their uh, house, probably from, you know, an electrical failure or something, suddenly is being charged with a crime, isn't getting insurance benefits. Um, but around the early 90s, the a group of fire investigators got together. There's an organization called the National Fire Protection Association. They did a lot of controlled testing, brought scientists from the realm of physics, chemistry, uh, uh, engineering, fire dynamics on board, and they put out a treatise called NFPA 921, Guide to Fire Ex Investigations. Um, that's become the standard of care in the profession, and the profession is slowly reformed toward understanding that you know, there's no magical fingerprint of arson. That was literally a word used in David Gavitt's case. He was convicted in 1986 in Ionia in a house fire in which his wife and two young daughters died. An unbelievable tragedy, even more so because David becomes the suspect because he's the sole survivor. That's how a lot of these cases went. Um, we looked at David's case starting in 2009 and um, had the fortune of somehow uh, meeting up with this attorney from Atlanta who was an expert in this stuff. And he connected us to John Lentini who read through the fire stuff and said, this case is the prototypical wrongful conviction. And he wrote us a, you know, 60 page affidavit. Uh, we had a couple of other experts um, kind of back him up. And we took this to the Ionia County prosecutor in 2010. And I give him a lot of credit. He didn't slam the door. He said, okay, let me take a look at it. He hired his own independent investigators who told him the same thing, that David had been convicted on a set of myths that everyone abided by in 1986, but everyone agrees today are nonsense. Yeah. And under today's standards, there's no evidence the fire was arson. And if there's no evidence the fire was arson, you can't have an arsonist. Uh, so David was exonerated in 2012 without us ever going to court because the Ionia County Prosecutor's Office throughout the conviction or stipulated to throwing out the conviction and then dismissed the case. Um, and it was, so that got us on this road. We've had two other arson victories since then. Um, and um, we've got, I think, three or four other cases that are very, very similar that we're litigating now. Unfortunately, not every prosecutor has uh, the perspective that the Ionia County prosecutor had in that case. And some have decided to fight us. So, Are you, I mean, I brought this up earlier and I'm just curious you have so much knowledge on arson cases. There are probably thousands of arson cases across this country right now being brought for wrong reasons. Are, how are you able to, are you able to get all this great knowledge and research to all of these 
defense attorneys and some of them making $500, $750 to represent some of these arson, uh, these people accused of arson right. um, as, as uh, court-appointed attorneys or whatnot. Um, how were how you able to get this information or are these, are, are they on their own and they got to Google it and hopefully find the man you were just de describing, hopefully find a, a, a law review article you've written or one of your students have written. Like, how do you get the information to the right people? That's the question. Yeah. And that's, that's the really important question. As I was describing earlier, as great as it is, when we win one of these cases, we have to understand that this is one of probably a thousand people that deserve the same uh, exoneration, but they don't have representation. So what we've tried to do is broaden our impact. And, you know, we aren't the first to do this. I learned this stuff because there were other attorneys and investigators who were generous with their time. And I was able to attend trainings that they did. Um, so I've done countless trainings uh, on, you know, litigating fire cases. I actually designed a course uh, on forensic science that I now teach at the law school so that, you know, kind of future lawyers can can have some exposure to this stuff. Um, and, you know, uh, the State Appellate Defender Office here in Michigan, and I think, you know, similar offices across the country have done really incredible trainings that um, Sato is actually able to require them for attorneys who uh, uh, are appointed to represent people on direct appeals. Um, the National Association of Criminal Defense Attorneys does excellent trainings throughout the year. I've presented at some of those. Um, but you're right, this is still you know, getting this information out to uh, the average criminal defense attorney is still very much a challenge. Uh, in the arson realm specifically, this stuff has been repudiated for 25 years, and yet it is still being presented in some form in courts. And that's that's really troubling. And, and you know, I'd re be remiss in the, in the few minutes we have left not to talk about, you know, the shaken baby syndrome cases, abusive head trauma cases. Your clinic has had success in those cases, and it's almost, it feels similar to what you're describing in the arson world, just kind of more junk science. Am I, am I far off? No, you're, you're pretty much spot on. This is uh, the first day of my forensic science class, which we actually just had, uh, consists of teaching students not to be blindly amazed by science, but to, to be appropriately skeptical when someone comes to court and purports to be able to do magic. And unfortunately, that's what has been the story of forensic science for 150 years. Someone comes up with a technique that they will tell prosecutors and police officers can magically give them an answer for a case they couldn't solve before. And the system blindly accepts that. And that isn't how it should be because uh, scientific standards require only presenting to juries evidence that meets a minimum threshold of reliability. We, t we treat scientific evidence officially in courtrooms very differently from all other evidence, right? An eyewitness who's shaky, they can testify and they'll, they'll get destroyed on cross-exam. We don't treat science that way because bad science, unfortunately, still has a huge impact on jurors. Uh, in fact, bad science has a bigger impact because someone will come in and say, I'm 100% sure this is arson, that sounds a lot better to a juror than a person who comes in and says, well, the good science tells me this could be arson, but it could also be this or this or this. The jury thinks this guy doesn't know what they're talking about. So in the SBS, shaken baby syndrome, abusive head trauma realm, it's that challenge of, um, you know, kind of questioning the uh, invincibility of this narrative as it's been presented to juries. 
this is not at all to deny that child abuse occurs. Unfortunately, it does. And when it does, it should be prosecuted. Um, but when we overstate the evidence, when we overread um, and, and use, you know, symptoms to mean things they don't mean, we're really doing an injustice. And I think the law in that world is very much in flux. We've had some success here in Michigan. Um, but unfortunately, as the uh, revolution in fire science showed, this is going to be a you know three decades long process to move from when people first question the dogma to when it becomes you know repudiated. So unfortunately, we're winning some of these cases on appeal, but people are still being charged and convicted every day on the same type of outdated science. Well. You know, you and I and uh, have collaborated a bit, and I have taken on a uh, abusive head trauma, shaken baby syndrome case in our offices here to try to uh, follow in, in your footsteps and try to get a man who did not have a fair trial, to be quite frank, uh, here in Michigan, accused and convicted of a, a shaken a baby syndrome, uh, you know, death and is sitting in prison for, you know, for life without parole. And, you know, I have read through the transcripts. It was very short. It was a three to four day trial, very bad defense attorney. The defense attorney was disbarred soon after. And um, it's just, it's just a tragedy. And, and there was little, if no cross-examination, there were no expert witnesses uh, brought. So, I, my office is in the, in, in the throes of this right now, and I'm going to be leaning on your office uh, for guidance and help, and I appreciate that. And in the future, you know, we'll have some discussions about this. But if you have any parting advice for me before we get on this uh, mission, let me know. Well, I think, um, you know, I am very grateful that, that you agreed to consider the case and then took it on. I think um, even though, you know, it's, it's not the type of case you've handled before, um, this is exactly what I'm hoping will become the norm, that people who have uh, expertise in litigating specifically, you know, medical issues here, I'm, I'm sure you've litigated in several cases a thousand times, um, that translates really well uh, to, this, to this world, to this post-conviction criminal uh, litigation world. And what I would love to do is to have attorneys like yourself handle enough of these cases so that there can be a wider conversation about the disparity in representation, because what you're finding is that this man who was facing life in prison got far less uh, of a defense than the average person would if they were simply fighting over some money, right? In a in a in a some kind of civil claim. Not to say that's not to denigrate that in any way, but here there should have been, you know, this should have been treated as the as the important emergency it was, which is there's a man who is being charged of killing a child and he'll spend the rest of his life in prison. Should we take a really close look at this? Unfortunately, it, these cases are treated as just a routine in our criminal justice system. And um, the more civil attorneys that look at this, um, you know, I think it kind of changes how we're profession will, will view these things. Um, the public has this misunderstanding that every case looks like, you know, the OJ Simpson case or the Casey Anthony case where you get 10 attorneys and 50 experts and, and, you know, the deck is stacked against the prosecution. It's really not how, you know, virtually any criminal case works. Um, usually you have one attorney who, if you're lucky, takes an interest in the case, um, but then is still left kind of without any of the resources to lit litigate it properly. 
Um, you know, my hope is as people learn more, there's this kind of general uh, love of forensic science and, and true crime in, in our community these days. I hope that'll translate to uh, lawyers becoming more interested in these issues, juries scrutinizing these issues, and then, you know, prosecutors and judges knowing that, you know, there is such a thing as good and bad science. And there's some stuff that even if you could get away with presenting it, you simply shouldn't. And, you know, that's how you police the system. Well, maybe we'll, you and I will have future conversations on this. And if, as civil attorneys across this country, listen, see the work that we're doing, hopefully get a decent, if not great result, maybe they will be more inclined to help. And because I know pro bono uh, work is not done by everybody, we are obviously taking this case on pro bono. And I'm a big believer that everybody should do a certain amount of hours every year. Um, it's not mandatory you know, so most lawyers don't do it, um, unfortunately. Um, and so hopefully this will, you know, maybe, maybe with your professor, your professorship, we'll, we'll be able to teach, uh, some, we'll, we'll be able to teach a little bit and shed some light on it. Cause I, I have not seen, you know, anybody really talking about this, this particular issue, what I'm talking about, getting a guy like me involved in a case like of the magnitude of this. Mm -hmm. And, I hope that becomes, uh, as you're saying, uh, something we can bring more people into. Um, I was describing kind of the, the sorry history of forensic science, but anytime there's been reform, it's always come after you bring the heavyweights on board. I mean, all of the favorable cases that the US Supreme Court or the Michigan Supreme Court has issued on forensic science are from civil litigation, where there were you know competent, qualified attorneys that presented the Daubert standard, said why something does or doesn't meet it. And that's where you get strong opinions. Very rarely do they come out of criminal cases because no one really has the resources to litigate the, the claims properly. That's interesting. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. And, and, and I guess that's kind of what I was saying, not calling myself a heavyweight attorney, but calling <laughs> myself, we can bring some, let's, you know, listen, Kenny Wanenko uh, would not be out of prison if the free press writer didn't take an interest in his case. You would have, you know, the Cooley Clinic would have never heard about his case. Right. That's just one tiny example that sometimes we need to bring some publicity to things for the greater good and to make change. And, you know, from what I'm reading in this case, it's really scary. And I know there's hundreds of other people in Michigan who are facing similar fates. And right. Right. And, and, you know, um, sometimes the, uh, we know the law comes before the public in terms of leading the public to the right place. And sometimes it's public perceptions that, that color the law. Um, you, you know, you can achieve justice one way or the other. Here, our courts, uh, specifically our Supreme Court, has been trying to uh, kind of effectuate some level of a fair fight in these, uh, you know, abusive head trauma cases. Uh, there's been a lot of pushback from prosecutors, but we'll see. I'm, I'm hopeful that we're kind of reaching a point where we'll get uh, at least just a level playing field. That's all we want, obviously, is just, uh, you know, that these cases be properly vetted before someone is put away for the rest of their life. I'm all about a level playing field. I talk about it often. I talk about it in my commercials. It, it's something <laughs> that really doesn't happen in our justice system, whether it be civil justice, criminal justice. And so anything I can do to help your clinic, as you know, I'm here, a big supporter, a big friend, um, you know, just call on me and uh, I'm here. So Professor Imran Syed, Assistant Director of the Michigan Innocence Clinic, thank you for being with us today. 
Um, I predict several more conversations in the future, and I appreciate you taking some time out to uh, educate me and our listeners and viewers. So thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, I look forward to continuing the conversation too. Okay. Thank you. Have a great day. Well, there you have it from Imrod Syed, uh, an amazing attorney up at uh, University of Michigan, one of the first people who got to see the Innocence Clinic grow. He was a student, and now he's been there for 10 years. He's the co-director. He's a professor, and he taught me a lot of things. So thank you to him for being on, and stay tuned. And if you know people who would like this discussion about the Innocence Clinic and criminal cases, for them this podcast. Tell them to watch, tell them to listen, subscribe to Open Mic on YouTube and the other channels. And we appreciate you being here and listening and watching. Thank you.